0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Late Sub, the show where we break down the biggest news in women's sports every single week. It is Tuesday, February 20th. We're hitting you with a little bit of a quicker turnaround this week because we took that nice long holiday weekend in the US, which was great, but we have got so much to talk about. We're gonna be looking both ahead and behind us today. We got a big scoring record to talk about. I'm sure you guys have heard. Wanna talk a little bit about some of the cool WNBA stuff that happened over the weekend. And then we're going to take a look ahead at the long week ahead for the U.S. Women's National Team as they get into the nitty-gritty of the Gold Cup group stage. No more intro, no further ado. Let's get into the news. So the biggest news of the week, and this is probably things that you have heard before because it's been a couple days. Caitlin Clark has done it. She is the leading scorer in NCAA Women's College Basketball. She did this on Thursday, surpassing the record previously held by Kelsey Plum. That record has stood since 2017. Um, if you guys missed the highlights, I really recommend going and checking them out. It was like typical Caitlin Clark fashion. She broke the record with a career and program high, 49 single game points. This was against Michigan. She scored the first eight of Iowa's points to break the record. The record-breaking shot itself was a logo three. It was just a really great confluence of player being ready for the moment, having a hot shooting night, and going for gold in front of uh, in front of a home crowd. It was really really cool. Um, it would have been a bummer. I think if she had had to kind of grind through those first, uh, eight points that she needed to break the record, not what happens at all. She was locked in ready to go, but that's kind of the player that Clark is. I felt like this was very indicative of the way she shows up in big moments. So I thought that was incredibly cool. Let's contextualize this a little bit. Um, now that the record has been set, you know, we have the chase you're chasing Kelsey plum, What comes next? How should we contextualize this? How should we feel about this record? How should we talk about it in hindsight as we maybe wait for the next player to come that might challenge this number? So let's rattle off some numbers here. Um, These numbers are courtesy of ESPN. So Clark now has... 3,569 career points, which puts her now ahead of Plum's 305,027 and counting. Clark still has a number of regular season games left. Obviously, there's then the Big Ten and the NCAA tournament. No one knows exactly how long those will be for Iowa, though. Imagine if they make a deep enough run. She's going to have the opportunity to set a, a much higher mark than Plum. This is going to really challenge for can this record be beaten? She's now 99 points between Pete Maravich's all-time NCAA record for men and for women. This also places her within a reasonable distance of Lynette Woodard's AIAW major college record of 3,649 points. A little bit of context there. Uh, Woodard set that record prior to women's basketball becoming an NCAA sport. So that is the major college record for all of women's basketball while Clark holds the NCAA record. Now, the record held for all of women's basketball held by Pearl Moore, also AIAW, not at a major college, will probably actually not be reached by Clark. So she's going to hit some of these additional milestones going into the end of the regular season, but it's unlikely that she is going to actually become the highest scorer in all of women's basketball because of that designation of the AIAW before women's basketball became an NCAA sport. But to keep it clean... She is the NCAA leading scorer for women's college basketball, D1. She has 53 career 30-point games, 12 40-point games, and 15 triple-doubles. Triple-doubles second only in uh, women's basketball history to Sabrina Unescu. Um, Her 53 30-point games are the most of any D1 women's basketball player in the last 25 years. We're talking about, again, generational stuff. She also leads Division I this season in total assists and assists per game, and she's the only player in Division I women's basketball history to have 3,000-plus career points and 1,000-plus career assists. So I keep saying this, kind of flying under the radar, is that Clark is statistically the best passer in college basketball this year as well. Again, generational stuff. We're going to get into the goat conversation just a little bit in a second, but I think you can say very confidently that Clark's class, this class of, of talented hoopers that came through, maybe also just notable for some of the hoopers that came through who had college careers affected by COVID, um, COVID lockdowns or, you know, the suspension of the NCAA tournament in 2020 um, generational stuff. This is a player that we're going to be talking about for a long time I think people are also really excited about the way this moment felt like just a huge sports moment, full stop. Women's sports are trying to reach the mainstream. We don't want this to be a niche achievement. She's getting congratulated. We'll talk about this a little bit more actually later in the show, but NBA All-Star Weekend happened over the weekend. Clark was getting shout-outs by, by players like Steph Curry, LeBron James. I think if you look at some of the celebrities who were tweeting about the broken record, I think like Lil Wayne, he's a, he's actually a women's basketball fan, um, tweeting about the record. In addition, obviously, to uh, many hearty congratulations from within the women's basketball space and from within the women's sports space, I think I, I've been a long-time fan of women's sports. You like to see it break containment in that way, and, and we know that it can also open up discussions that aren't as informed as we would like them to be because we're having fans and actually probably notable people in men's sports pay attention to this for possibly the first time are they missing out should they have been paying attention sooner absolutely but it's great to see people come in it's great to see the crowds it's great to see the fan debate it's great to see these this accomplishment being talked about on on things like sports center seeing her her clips her you know I saw the the post game press conference all over not only my social media feeds but also uh, on TV of, of Clark saying like, you know, it had to be a logo three. She was there with the quote, love to see this moment of, a, of an individual women's college basketball achievement breaking into the mainstream. It's really exciting. We want that for women's sports. Um, and also sports tend to move on from these accomplishments pretty quickly, which is interesting. Obviously Clark is going to be recognized for a long time as the record holder until someone challenges it. But individual records, I mean, people might note someone like Plum, she left college as, as the, the record holder in 2017. Didn't get talked about as much until Clark was on this quest to beat the record. This will likely be true uh, when, when maybe we see some of these, these talented players who are a little bit younger also try to challenge for this record. But I liked from, you know, amount of marketing perspective so much, but maybe just from a cultural and uh, uh, this larger moment in women's basketball Clark helping Iowa make it to the national championship game last year, which is notable, you know, Iowa hasn't been known historically as uh, a formidable women's basketball program. Taking them to the national championship game last year, and then following that up with the breaking of this record, and it's going to be a shattering of this record, is the thing that you want to see, not only for the individual player who bet on herself playing for the hometown team, but it's also what you want for the larger arc of the sport. It gives people things to talk about. It gives you a larger-than-life figure to latch onto, and I think we've seen that for fans of all ages being excited about Clark. Um, and it will only continue, right? Even if she, she stays at Iowa, if she moves on to the WNBA, the arc of, of last year into this year is really, really impressive, and I cannot wait to see what happens in the postseason. Maybe they do it one better. Maybe we see a shocking end. Who can say? So naturally, you know, I think the natural thing that you want to do with something like this, you see a record, you see someone break a scoring record, break a shooting record, and you go, oh, well, they must be the best college basketball player of all time, best women's college basketball player of all time. One of the best shooters, absolutely. Um, but I think it also opens up, and I think this comes into MVP conversations, comes into player of the year conversations. This is a debate held across sports, pro, college, doesn't matter, which is what constitutes the quote-unquote best player. Is it individual accolades? Is it shooting with the green light, knowing that you're going to be getting the looks that you need to, to accomplish um, individual uh, milestones, Is it rings? I think that's been a big question of if Clark finishes her college career without any rings, does that affect where she stands in the all time greatest list? I think the counter to that is she decided to stay home and and build something at Iowa. She didn't go to a more of a blue chip uh, contender. But you could also argue well, we don't know what Clark can do on a blue chip contending team, right? Playing with other uh, top recruits is in and of itself its own skill. Being able to do that is a skill. I think that Clark is absolutely in the conversation for one of the best college basketball players of all time. I think, again, I think the term I prefer is generational. I think this is a generational player because it is really hard to see how someone like Clark stacks up with, I'm just going to throw some names out here that you all might know, incredibly good players like Maya Moore, Brianna Stewart, Candice Parker. You go even further back to Cheryl Miller, Cheryl Swoops. These eras are all very different, and college basketball is a little bit more of a silo where it all just depends on what you do in March, and it is true that Iowa has not made it over that last hump to make it to the national championship. We also don't know, and this is where I'm I'm really interested, it's hard to gauge how long this particular record is going to last. Clark, again, is poised to break Plum's record by a lot. But that record didn't last very long, right? The plum record from 2017 to 2024. We also have to take a look at, and we've mentioned on this show before, the really talented freshmen coming into college basketball that are already in the top you know, top five, top eight in, in scoring this year, freshmen like Hannah Hidalgo, freshmen like Juju Watkins. If you look at the per year scoring rate of these players versus Clark, Watkins is actually ahead of where Clark was her freshman year. Clark also lost a couple games her freshman year due to um, the suspended season due to COVID. Juju Watkins is also a player that might end up having the green light at USC. They've got some good recruiting classes coming in and I'm sure they're going to be aggressive at the transfer portal, but it's possible that you have, you just shoot or shoot. Watkins has the green light this year that might continue on. Maybe you do have a player where they're the focal point of this team. And they believe that the best way to win is for them to get as many looks as possible. And maybe we're talking about chasing Clark in four years which is really exciting, but it also makes it difficult to have that goat conversation because I think you talk about a player like Brianna Stewart, perhaps who won four national titles in her four years of college. And you goes, well, that's wrapped up. That's it. That's, that's the conversation wrapped up, but there's always going to be new talents as resources come into the sport. As women's sports continue to rise, I think we're going to continue to see new heights individually and for teams. And that is also really exciting to me. So congrats to Clark. Um, I'm sure she's happy to have this out of the way. Um, I am interested in sort of how she handles her increasingly growing celebrity, both in women's basketball and beyond. They're going to get those, man, Clark is going to get everyone, every team's best in, in the Big Ten tournament and in the NCAA tournament. And how long Iowa's run goes could probably really affect what she decides to do next year. So really, really fascinating. Some other women's basketball stories that I want to check in on. Uh, Gino Ariema of UConn became the second winningest coach in NCAA D1 history this week, surpassing Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, with his 1,203rd win. This is a milestone that's been in the news recently because Tara Vanderveer did the same thing. um, Probably, I think it was about a month ago. And so these two, both women's basketball coaches, uh, Vanderveer is at Stanford, Ariema at UConn, they are again kind of like clark continuing to play these games they're going to start stretching this record out and some of the question is for who's going to end up with this this top record at the end of their career is just who coaches the longest van Der veer and rama are probably i mean not probably they are closer to the end of their careers than the beginning and part of this, this record chase, I guess, though I don't think they really see it that way. Gino has already said, he says, I'm not going to have it, but who knows, who knows what happens in the future. Um, is there longevity? It's uh, as much a testament to a coach's longevity and excellence as it is just their winning percentage every year. However, Arianna for, you know, all of his hemming and hawing about how long he wants to keep coaching has a little bit more reason to stick around because another big announcement that was made this week is that Paige, Beckers is staying at UConn for another year. Beckers could have exhausted her NCAA eligibility at the end of this season and moved on to the WNBA. A lot of people have said that she's WNBA ready, but she's going to stay. She's going to stay for her uh, last remaining year of eligibility, come back to this UConn team. I don't think – while this is a big deal, let's say this. While this is a big deal, it is not – Normal necessarily for a talent that is pro ready to stay um, an additional year. For Becker's individual case, I don't think this was all that shocking. Um, Becker's own college career has been plagued by individual injury or injury to teammates. This UConn class has really struggled to stay healthy. They have not won a national championship, this particular recruiting class, which is something that she wanted to do. I mean, she said she wanted to do it many times over. I don't think she's going to consider her college career um, as successful as it could have been if she can't make that happen for UConn. People might remember they did make it to the national championship game. um, I believe it was two years ago, but they did not uh, end up winning that final And so I think this for Beckers is the ability to manifest maybe that one solid season that she had been envisioning happening all four years for her in college, where she's not struggling with injury. Her teammates are not struggling with injury. They get to feel good, play good, play like the UConn team that they know they can be. Not that they've been bad. I think that they're uh, still incredibly competitive. So her staying makes sense. This is not going to be, I think – If we see more people making this choice, there are other players that have this option. Caitlin Clark could come back. Cameron Brink at Stanford could come back. Angel Reese at LSU could come back. There are a lot of players who have that option to take that extra COVID year. And if we do see multiple players take this track, I do think there's going to be a natural inclination to say, well, here's this one reason why this is happening. Here is this one larger thing. You could make it um, a larger conversation about NIL versus WNBA salary. You could make it about the draft. Maybe players want more control over their careers and they feel really comfortable where they're at. You can make it about resources and marketing and, and a variety of things. But I think each of these players are going to be making individual decisions that are best for them, which is why I do not expect Paige Beckers to be the only top talent to return to college basketball next year. But I don't think you can apply her logic to everybody. For example, I don't think you can necessarily apply her logic to Clark who knows because of who has the number one pick that she wouldn't be moving too far from home. She's going to stay in the Midwest. Indiana holds the number one pick. They already have another uh, blue chip prospect in Aliyah Boston on that team. That's something you can build with for a long time. And Depending on how the Big Ten tournament in March Madness goes for Iowa, that might not necessarily be an indicator of, oh, I think we can do better next year. It might be an indicator of we have reached new heights as a program and this might be our ceiling. So stay tuned. There's going to be more on this front going forward. And it's really interesting how it bleeds into the WNBA storylines because teams are making moves for these lottery picks or these first round picks in 2024 with the hope that as many of these players are going to come out of college as possible. And what happens when you bet on a deep draft that doesn't end up being as deep as you would like it to be. So this is going to be something to watch for a while. A couple little things I just want to hit on college basketball before we move on to soccer. Uh, Baylor retired Brittany Griner's number two, or sorry, not number two, number 42 Jersey this weekend, which is a larger story than maybe it seems. I think teams obviously retire Jersey numbers for, for top players. Griner brought, brought Baylor uh, a national championship. Griner, uh, to this day, is in the record books as one of the best, talk about, again, that GOAT conversation, one of the best college women's basketball players of all time. But this is a real thawing of a relationship between Griner and Baylor. Um, people might recall that when Griner was at Baylor, uh, Kim Mulkey was the coach there. there that was not, I think, uh, a necessarily super positive relationship at the end. But new Baylor coach, Nikki Collin, has been instrumental to being both an advocate for Griner when she was wrongfully detained in Russia and also making sure to keep her part of the conversation and honoring her now that she's back. Um, I think Nikki Collin is good people. It's been a great story to see. It's also just great to see Greiner. Um, she was like throwing up dunks, throwing up dunks at Baylor. She was hanging out with the Baylor bear. Uh, Griner is a player that you obviously just hope for her uh, mental and emotional and obviously physical health and this was just a very nice offseason story for her as she gets ready to, you know, we'll see resign with Phoenix perhaps and also make a run at the Olympics. Um, the Pac-12 continues to be a buzzsaw of a conference to the point where I think it's affecting team seating. Uh, Stanford has continued to do quite well, but there is no other team that has been able to consistently win in conference. We saw the, the big viral moment this week was Oregon State taking down UCLA with an incredible uh, behind the arc buzzer beater these Pac-12 teams are talented, man, but I think that they have been <laughs> almost, uh, uh, it, it, how hard is too hard for for a single conference to the point where you're struggling to get the high seating that you perhaps deserve. So if you're looking at a quadrant, if you're a fan of a, a college women's basketball team and they're maybe the highest seed in a particular quadrant of the early rounds of the NCAA tournament, once that comes around, watch out for these Pac-12 teams because they're likely to be under Um, So I'm fascinated to see kind of how that shakes out in the postseason and then last i do want to hit on number one south carolina they did not lose this week they are still uh the universal number ones but what i liked from south carolina this week is they actually didn't shoot that well south carolina didn't have a great week it's it feels this kind of feels like the dog days of their regular season um they're known for being a team that can hit you inside hit you outside their outside shooting was was not that strong this week but they still found ways to win um And it's hard to gauge. I I almost feel bad for South Carolina maintaining this undefeated record because I think it changes the narrative of who they are as this team that everyone is going to try to, to knock off that perch. Where for me, I see a team that is incredibly talented, has their ups and downs. They're not always shooting people off the court. But this is a pretty clutch team too. I mean, I watched their game against Georgia this week and it was really close up until the beginning of the fourth quarter, but they can do this to you. They hit a couple, you know, the threes weren't falling and then finally they start to hit, right? You get a couple threes, you get a couple tough points in the paint. You have players in foul trouble, making smart moves, not fouling out. They're a team that I think if you want to be able to beat them, you're going to have to establish a league at half a lead at halftime. That is almost untouchable because this is a clutch team. This is this team closes probably better than anybody else in college basketball. And that is why they are still undefeated going into this week, rather than just sort of building this narrative that that they're untouchable because I think what they're doing is actually a lot more interesting than that. So that was a big, long update on college basketball do you want to dive deeper into women's sports news of the week you can get the latest news delivered straight into your inbox that's right you can start your morning off right five days a week with the just women's sports newsletter our free daily newsletter that brings you the latest and greatest in women's sports whether it's breaking news exclusive conversations or just a cool stat that you might be missing we've got you covered so never miss a story on women's sports you can subscribe for free at justwomensports.com backslash newsletter that's justwomensports.com backslash newsletter and we'll see you in your inbox All right, to the world of international football, international soccer. The U.S. Women's National Team is back in action. It is Tuesday. We're recording on Tuesday. This will be released on Wednesday. They are in action tonight and Friday, which kind of puts us in a funny position with the podcast. I was laughing about it putting the script together. Uh, I'm going to say all my things and then they're going to play a game and then this episode is going to come out and you can tell me whether I'm really smart or I got a lot of things wrong. So we're going we're gonna to do a full preview here of the Gold Cup. The next time we record, they will have played two group stage games with one that night. Uh, by the next time you hear from us, they will have played the entire group stage. This is a quick tournament. We will actually get into that because I think that is a huge factor into how this will be managed by the coaches of all of these teams. So The U.S. is in Group A. There are three groups of four teams. The U.S.'s group stage schedule, they'll play Dominican Republic tonight. Uh, The Dominican Republic uh, qualified in the preliminary matches over the weekend. They'll play Argentina on Friday and then close out the group stage on Monday against Mexico. The other actions, Group B, has Brazil, Colombia, Panama, and Puerto Rico. I think that's a tough group. I think we could see some really interesting stuff in that group. Um, people might remember that Colombia made it out of the group stage at the 2023 World Cup, and Brazil did not. Um, so I feel kind of bad. They're the two seated, the two highest seated South American teams were in the same group, which I think is great for for early competition, keeping things competitive. But I think a bummer for for some of these teams. And then Group C has Canada, Costa Rica, El Salvador, and Paraguay. That group is a little bit less exciting to me. I do think that these these group draws, you know, nobody's fault. This happens. They just were a little bit lopsided um but i do think one of the great equalizers here uh is the schedule like i said it's interesting we we record a weekly podcast and we're actually recording we're going to do tuesday this week and monday next week and just doing the weekly podcast we're going to get through the group stage right away because this group stage is being played in less than a week tuesday friday and then monday which means that for a team for example like the us who has a vast majority of their players in the preseason in NWSL, who might not be in the kind of fitness necessary to be able to hit those games back to back to back, which is, is not expected of them. They will rotate heavily. A lot about this group stage is going to be, of course, playing well, winning, setting yourself up for success in the knockout rounds. But it's also just to make sure that everyone stays fit. This is kind of a danger zone time for players. Um, and people might have have seen this is is not related to the US, but Angel City superstar June Endo tore her ACL in preseason training last week. This is a a time where you don't want to be ramping up too much too soon because this is where you can have make-or-break moments for a player's year. And so the U.S. is going to want to win. They're going to want to play well. But they also are not going to want to lose players to injury, whether short or long term. The Olympics are not that far away. All right, quick edit here. Hey, guys, this is Claire from the future to that point. We actually had some breaking news mid-recording of this episode that I do want to slot in here because it is really important to both the U.S. for this Gold Cup and for the Olympics. The U.S. did announce uh, today on Tuesday that Mia Fischl has torn her ACL in her right knee during training on February 19th. She'll be replaced on the roster by Alex Morgan. Um, just, you know, quick analysis on this. I'm not going to go too long. And we're, we're also, there are going to be references to Fischl later in this segment from what was previously recorded. I think tactically you can talk about Alex Morgan in a similar fashion because she is, will also be The only natural center forward on the roster. But um, quick analysis is just that this is brutal for Fischl, who has ascended quickly into the U.S. women's national team ranks and the ranks at Chelsea. She's a really good player and she'll be back stronger. Um, And also, this really does greatly impact the U.S.'s options going forward at the center forward position as they also wait for the return of Katarina Macario. So, best wishes to Fischl. Morgan will do a good job as a replacement, of course. And like I said, the analysis should be relatively similar. So, here are some of my things that I would like to see the US do. Um, I've been covering the US for, for a long time. I've covered them through the Olympics and, and the World Cup. Here's some of the things that I would like to see after us talking about some of the big picture things that the team is looking at last week. First of all, with fitness on the mind, I do think that we're going to see the Europe based players who are in season get a significant amount of minutes. Um, If you're sick of seeing Lindsay Horan in the midfield, I would say buckle up because I think she's going to be playing a lot, not only because she is obviously a a veteran and and the captain of the team, but also because she is going to be the most played in, probably the most match fit um, of a lot of these midfielders. I think we're going to see Mia Official at center forward, not only because she also is in season, but because she's the only real natural holdup center forward on the roster. As we know, Sophia Smith can play centrally, then Williams can play centrally, but I think Mia Official is going to get a lot of tape during this tournament. Again, not only because she is naturally in a position to do so in sort of that 4-3-3 that the U.S. likes to play, but also because she is a little bit more in form and fit. Uh, Corbin Albert. Of PSG is a player that she, I think I said this last week, was shouted out for her versatility. This would be a great opportunity for her. If she is slightly more played in than some of these other players, this might give her a chance to maybe slot into that playmaking role, whether off the bench or starting, or maybe she does relieve a player like Haran, or maybe she becomes more of a free floating player when they move into that 4 4 2 out of possession. She's going to have a huge chance here to to get some looks again because she's europe-based and she's in season and then the other player who is is based in europe and i think was just going to get a lot of time anyway is emily fox she is the one of the starting outside backs for this team so that just kind of works uh in in the u.s's favor she's going to get a lot of playing time i also just don't want to see too much veteran hand-holding i think we can talk about the she believes cup in april about getting veterans onto the field and i think we saw that even with the roster selection that that might be the timeline that the u.s is is thinking about. I don't think uh, goalkeeper Alyssa Nair should play too much, certainly not in this group stage. I don't think that's what this is for. I think Alyssa Nair, we know exactly what she can do. Her job at this point is to stay healthy and to get into match form. I think that she's there to help set the training tone, and I would like to see a lot more of the other two younger goalkeepers, especially in this group stage. I don't want to see only Emily Sonnet in the defensive midfield. I want Sam Coffey to get chances to sink or swim in the defensive midfield and also benefit from some of the slight formational tweaks that we've seen during the early part of this Kilgore and uh, Hayes era of the team. I want liberal substituting. We didn't see that a lot in 2023. We didn't see a lot of trust in the bench, and that's supposed to be one of the United States' great uh, strongest points I want to make sure that players like Jaden Shaw are getting looks, not only perhaps in, in starting roles, but also coming in. And she's a real playmaker, a real impact player coming off of the bench. I assume, I mean, this is, again, you can you can tell me if I'm wrong. I think we're probably going to see a starting three of, of Smith, Fischel and Trinity Rodman, just based on on what we saw at the end of 2023. But it's hard to gauge if Sophia Smith does like to play more centrally. I don't know if we're going to start seeing more nuances to the way that she's being utilized by the team. But there are so many talented attackers on this team. And, and you know, you could go down the list where, like I said, Lynn Williams um, is great from distance. She can drift in centrally. She's an incredible defensive attacker. Mitch Purse is really great at getting end line. She can create width in your attack. Smith is a player that is really good on the ball. She doesn't like to get wide so much. So maybe you start rolling into that Um a less rigid 4-3-3 out of possession so that she feels like she can move into spaces that fit for her so that she feels like she's getting into good uh, spots to to shoot because we, we saw a reluctance at times for the U.S. to actually take shots in 2023. So there's so much room to be creative and just try a lot of different things. And this group stage is a good place to do that because the U.S. is going to be the heavy favorite in all three of these games. In the defense... I would like to see more of the San Diego Wave partnership of Naomi Gurma and Abby Dahlkemper. I think Dahlkemper's return is a a big underrated story for the U.S. that has struggled to find a player not uh, near the end of their career that can sit in with Gurma and and be reliable. Um, Dahlkemper, as people might know, had major back surgery. Uh, to deal with a significant amount of, of pain that she was in that affected her form and also, obviously, her quality of life. Um, Becky Sauerbrunn is now in with the team. Alana Cook picked up a slight knock in rain preseason. Um, but like I said, I, I don't need to see a ton of Sauerbrunn. Sauerbrunn is there to set the tone. She's there to be a leader. We know exactly what she can do, and I think it's a good fitness check-in for her, as she probably does like to make a run for this last Olympics. Um, but I want to see other players get a chance to build that chemistry. And I also want to see more clarity in what the U.S. wants to do with their outside backs. We know Emily Fox is going to be a major part of that. She's a player that can get wide. She also likes to drift inside. I am curious if the U.S. is moving into a period of time where Crystal Dunn is still one of the starters and outside back. If she's not one of the starters and outside back, why is she still listed as a defender? I think we're starting to get into... Uh, a a later stage career conversation of Crystal Dunn, which if she is not your first choice outside back, why does she have to be listed there on the roster? Why can't she go and compete in the midfield? I think that is a larger philosophical question uh, chasing the team, but this also will be affected by the formation. I said last week, I'm not expecting huge, huge changes, but what we saw in late 2023 was More just about empowering the team to put numbers forward when they have the ball and to settle into spaces that they're more comfortable in off of the ball. And so that's not so much a a huge formation change. I think they're going to line up and it's going to look like a 4-3-3, but maybe they empower the outside backs to get forward a lot more, play more of a wing back role when they have the ball. And we're expecting them to have a lot of the ball in this group stage. And then when they don't have the ball and they're chasing their defensive assignments and trying to find pockets in space, perhaps to move into quick transition, should they get the ball back? You change that formation to let your uh, attackers drift slightly more centrally because that is naturally where they like to be. I'm hopeful to see that continue. A lot of what we saw of the U.S. in CONCACAF competition in the past under, and- after- under Vladko Andonovski was sort of aimless possession, trying long balls over the top, um, not a lot of movement in the midfield, not very sharp in the midfield. I want to see the team really trying to exploit pockets of space that are going to be hard to come by because these teams are, gonna, are going to be staunch defensively. Um, and then I also would just like to see the U.S. get comfortable shooting. And all of that, you know, for the sport of soccer, you know, you say shoot as if it's an easy thing to do, but I think it's a culmination of being comfortable in these different spaces. Don't rely too much on quick transition. Don't overthink it in front of the in front of goal. And just don't fall into that trap of slow pace possession that doesn't really go anywhere. So for on the field, that is what I would like to see from the United States. Uh, we'll see if we get that against Dominican Republic, who did really, really well to, uh, to make the final, final round of, of the tournament. Um, I, like I said, the U.S. doesn't always look super sharp at the beginning of the calendar year. Really interested to see how this group stage goes. I do want to return briefly to some of the bigger picture conversation surrounding the U.S. because we had an update this week to one of, at this point, the larger storylines in 2024 for the U.S. Women's National Team. Um, I talked about this a little bit at the end of last week's show about Lindsay Horan doing an interview with The Athletic where she was pretty candid about some of the things that she would like to see from the U.S. going forward. She was very passionate about what she thinks the team needs to change. Um, she also made some comments about sort of the American, the average American fan, and whether she felt like they were being served to become more knowledgeable, to have opinions that she felt better reflected what she sees internally. Um to, to, to bring up exactly what it was that she said that, that, that riled some feathers, and, and this was sort of the pull quote, what she said in that athletic piece was, um, she said, American soccer fans, most of them aren't smart. And that was the sentence that I think really set everybody off. That makes sense. Uh, you, she, she elaborated slightly more in the athletic piece. She said, from what I've heard, people understand my game a little bit more in France, which is where she plays club, the sense of my football and the way I play. It's the French culture. Everyone watches football. People know football that you know there there was a response to that you know i think people felt like she was undercutting the american fan uh there was a a lot of conjecture about what she meant by that um obviously you can't always know in a written piece sort of what question prompted that answer or if there was more that was left on the cutting room floor but haran in front of media this week actually formally apologized for those comments which i think this is notable regardless of whether you think she was right whether you think it's overblown whether you think it, it warranted this apology i think any time a us women's national team captain issues a formal apology to the public that is a pretty big deal and what she said at the top of media availability she said first and foremost i would like to apologize to our fans some of my comments were poorly expressed and there was a massive lesson learned for me Uh, she said, when I think about our fans, I love them so much. This team loves them so much. I can't begin to explain how much they mean to us. Every time we step out and train, every time we step out and play in games, we play for you guys. You are an inspiration. You're our motivation. And seeing you wear our jerseys and see you screaming our names and chanting USA, that's what we play for. And I never wanted to take any of that away. Again, it's not so much about the apology itself, but I do think that you have to take this at face value of – watching a player like Haran figure out what it means to exactly be a US women's national team captain, which does mean probably greater weight to your words in the media. Um, She said that she was, she was asked uh, later in the availability sort of what prompted the apology. And she said it came from herself, even just reading her own comments back in that piece and and seeing how they were received. She said it was a a growth point, a learning point for her. Um, And I think it does What interests me about this is less the minutia of what was said, what wasn't was said, what she meant, what she didn't mean, and more looking at a U.S. Women's National Team captain sort of step into that role for real. Because last year, 2023, Lindsay Horan was captain of the team at the World Cup, but that was still a team that had Megan Rapinoe on it. That was still a team that had Alex Morgan on it, Kelly O'Hara on it. There were some veteran leadership pieces to that team that Andonovsky clearly felt were necessary. And he took up space on that roster that could have been used maybe on a younger player, a player that was more available on the field. And so with those players, certainly Rapino has retired. I think Morgan and O'Hara are still, and, and Sauerbrunn obviously are still in the running for the Olympic squad. But what does that sort of experienced leadership role look like when those players are no longer there? And I think we saw Haran kind of learn in real time what those players had perhaps been shielding her generation of players from, which is you do have to think about exactly what you're saying. You have to be kind of well-considered with your comments, and you have to think about how they impact not only the fans and the, the news cycle, but your teammates. So I, I thought that was an interesting thing that happened, certainly. Like I said, you don't see a U.S. Women's National Team captain apologize very often. Certainly that was not uh, Megan Rapinoe's style when she was uh, in the leadership role with the team. But um, th- we're moving into a new era of the U.S. Women's National Team where players like Haran, like Lavelle, like Sonnet, um, have to think of themselves truly as the veteran, the veteran players. Um, certainly crystal Dunn is, is in there as well, and she is a little bit older, but we 're seeing a shift and and with that shift comes sort of a change in in choices and and tones so interesting to to see that happen and and also probably from from my perspective uh interesting to see how it plays out on the field as well and sort of how those connections are built and how that leadership process affects what happens on the field so like bigger gold cup stuff, I think if you 're wondering who are the favorites here, I do think the u s are the favorites um I really like both Brazil and Colombia. Brazil under new management. uh, Colombia actually under new management as well. Um, And a lot of questions about Canada. They obviously had some pretty high... They're still in sort of a high-profile dispute with their federation about resources. They did at least get uh, some cohesion with their uh, management position, which is that Bev Priestman is continuing on with the team, which I think is a huge positive very talented coach. It would have been a shame if, if they had lost her because Canada soccer was unable to commit resources to the team or unwilling to commit resources to the team, depending on, on who you ask. Um, so I think sort of those notable powers, those powers you're used to seeing in the later rounds of a, a, a tournament, like a world cup, but I'm also really excited to see how, for example, Mexico, has developed since a a frustrating qualifying tournament in 2022. I'm excited to see if if Argentina has taken steps forward, Panama taken steps forward. And then also these qualifying teams, Puerto Rico, El Salvador, and Dominican Republic, getting a chance to participate in this programming, I think is really exciting as well. Um, Just other cleanup news for international soccer on that realm of Olympic qualifying. Canada, U.S., France, Colombia, Brazil, and New Zealand have all qualified for the Olympics. New Zealand being the most recent team, they did that this week. Uh, On the 23rd, so this is also this week, two teams of Germany, Netherlands, and Spain will be joining France as qualified out of Europe. We're seeing the Nations League semifinals. Those are really important games. Um, The way that works is whoever makes it to the final will have qualified for the Olympics, or if France makes it to the final, it will be the winner of the third place team. People might have already known that like teams like Sweden and England didn't make it this far, Olympic qualifying being truly brutal in the European region. Uh, two teams of Australia, Uzbekistan, Japan, and North Korea will also be determining their fate this international break. They have two-legged qualifiers determining the two spots out of Asia. And then the African qualifiers are also continuing this international break. They will not be determined. They have one more round in April. But Ghana, Zambia, Tunisia, Morocco, Cameroon, Nigeria, Tanzania, and South Africa are all still alive for those two African spots. So we're starting to see the picture come together for what the Olympics will be. So... With all that said, you can roast me in the comments if I was super wrong about all the stuff you're going to see for the U.S., but I think I've made it incredibly clear, which is that I just want new stuff. I want to see new creative ideas. I want to see uh, sound footballing uh, tactics implemented by players who know what they're doing, Um, and I'm really, really excited to see this get started. So that is soccer. We're going to take, again, one quick break here, and then we will move on to one of the more interesting storylines of the week, uh, the three-point contest at the NBA All-Star Game between Steph Curry and Sabrina Ionescu. All right, so I do want to give a little bit of time today To the first of its kind, Stefan versus Sabrina, three-point shooting contest that happened at NBA All-Star Weekend on Saturday. Now, obviously, this was not like a, not a competitive, well, I mean, it was competitive, but this is all in good fun. This is just All-Star programming. Um, The idea came from UNESCO breaking Steph Curry's all-time three-point contest record in 2023. People might remember she made 37 after, out of a possible 40 points Um, incredible. She smashed, you know, Allie Quigley's record for the WNBA and she also smashed all time for both men and women's basketball. The two players know each other pretty well. UNESCO is a Bay area native. Obviously that's where Curry has played his entire professional career. Um, It just seemed like they, they, they put their heads together. They were texting about UNESCO breaking that three point record, maybe just going back and forth and, and coming up with this idea which was one round of, of the, the normal three-point contest where you have the the racks in, in, in the four different segments and got the money ball, all those different things that people might be familiar with for a three-point contest. Again, one round, Sabrina went first. She scored um, 26 from the NBA line. That was a point of contention of, of whether or not Ionescu would be shooting from the WNBA three-point line or the NBA three-point line. She chose the NBA three-point line, scored 26. Steph did win with a score of 29. But the 26 points that UNESCO scored matched the winning score for the 2024 men's version of the event by Damian Lillard. So to kind of wrap all of that up into a bow, Steph Curry is one of the greatest – is probably the greatest three-point shooter of all time. He won with 29. But if UNESCO had competed – in the 2024 version of the event she would have been in a tiebreaker with damian lillard for the men's title she's incredibly well for herself and she did it from the nba line she did use the wnba ball but i don't think anyone has any issue with that hand size as a factor it was a ratings hit i think this is so interesting the contest peaked at 5.4 million viewers for specifically the stefan versus sabrina three-point challenge and overall That led to the highest ratings for the skills challenge in the last four years. So this was clearly popular not only with WNBA fans, with NBA fans, but just with casuals who wanted to see something like this happen. Obviously, the NBA is affiliated with the WNBA. They should be supporting these kinds of crossovers. But I also want to dispel the myth that this was just marketing for the dub. This was something that was exciting for NBA fans, too. I think there was a lot of, of conversation coming out of NBA All-Star Weekend about, like, what is the point of these weekends? How can we get players engaged? How can we make there be stakes? How can we make the game fun for fans, both in the arena and at home? And I think everyone would have to say that this was the greatest success of the entire weekend. And that's in large credit to Ionescu, specifically herself. She handled a lot of scrutiny going into this event. Um, initially it had been announced that she was going to shoot from the WNBA three-point line, which she quickly uh, rebutted on Twitter. But maybe if you didn't see that tweet, you didn't know that that change had been made. So there had been conversations about the three-point line from people who weren't aware of what she was actually doing. So she had to kind of handle that scrutiny. Um, she had to handle the scrutiny of obviously the the ball, whether she was using the WNBA ball, NBA ball, it did not make any sense for her to use the NBA ball. But in what we understand about how, hoops fans or or fans of men's sports can be about the WNBA. This was a risky thing to do, I think for both players, but specifically for UNESCO, I I remember going, I mean, I'll tell you how I felt going into it, which was that I didn't necessarily have the expectation that Sabrina was going to beat Steph Curry, who, like I said, is, is the greatest of all time, but you wanted it to go well. You wanted her, she's out of season. You don't know exactly what her, um, her training regimen has looked like. You don't know exactly how in form or, or her conditioning looks like. If this hadn't gone well, if she had not been competitive with the other men's competition, I don't think she would have ever heard the end of it. Other WNBA players would have never heard the end of it. It it would have not been as fun or as productive as it ended up being. And so my respect for UNESCO just skyrocketed because she really bet on herself. And obviously, she knows what she can do. And we've seen her in, in games do this as well. But talk about stakes, you know? You don't see that in all-star competitions so much. You see a lot of really friendly competition. You see players trying not to get injured. You see players um, sort of having fun with it almost to a fault. But this was really important. And I would imagine for Curry, you know, I bet he also didn't want to lose this either because then he probably wouldn't have heard the end of it in a different way. And and there's no solving these conversations. There's no solving assumptions about the WNBA or or turning people who would not otherwise be a fan of the dub into dub fans by proving it to them by some result. But I do think that it's still fair to say, Hey, you took a big risk on this and it went really, really well. And maybe we should do it again. Um, love to see UNESCO challenge the assumed range of your average women's basketball player. You know, you see, you, Taking it back to the Caitlin Clark conversation, people watch her play and they go, oh, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know they were shooting logo threes out there. And we go, you know, you watch the dub, you watch college basketball. Caitlin Clark and Unesco aren't the only players who can do this. Jewel Lloyd can, can shoot from just about anywhere. Enrique Agumbawale can shoot from just about anywhere. And that's just two players um, off the top of my head. Uh, we know, people who watch the dub regularly know how the range is beginning to grow um, just in, honestly, in general, I mean, you think about the development of stretch bigs and the dub in the last 10 to 15 years, but the, the range is growing. I'm really curious to see actually if we see the line change at some point in the next 10 years, if that becomes something that uh, the WNBA pushes for. Um, And sometimes you have to be a little bit in your face about that. This is kind of the whole potential of an event like this, which is if you're a casual, if you're not paying attention, if you're not watching games in and out, maybe you don't know. Maybe you don't know how the women's game has developed and how things has changed. And I thought this was a very in-your-face way to do that. Um, I thought it was a little short, only one round. Again, it made sense competitively. Like I said, UNESCO is out of season. Would not have made sense for her to do multiple rounds. Um, I liked that we got good shooting from both players. I don't know if that would have continued had that gone into multiple rounds, but I'm like, all right, let's make it a tag team. Let's make it a, you know, you got two teams, you got one dub player, one NBA player. Let's extend this out in a way that makes sense for everybody. Um, And like I said, I I really, really liked the high stakes and I think that it should continue. I think that they should do a similar event at dub all-star weekend this summer. I think that keeping the WNBA in the conversation, obviously there's been a lot of free agency conversation, but in, in the hooping conversation during the off-season is really important. It's not something that they're always able to do easily because players play overseas. So, again, I hate bringing it, it into this because this is a sports podcast, but the marketing element, giving players a chance to show off what they can do at that level is important, and I, I commend the dub for putting this together and also would encourage them to to do more things like this. Um, the high tides can raise all ships. Like I said, the the high ratings for this event was not – it was good for the NBA too. And arguably it was better for the NBA than the WNBA because the NBA had less to lose. And so let's bring that energy into dub weekend. Let's, let's bring some NBA players into the WNBA all-star Weekend. is going to be in Phoenix this year. And let's see what we can cook. Let's see what we can make this happen. And, and I think again, people get, people get nervous. People get, get defensive. I think we've seen some very ignorant takes uh, both from, from mainstream media elements who maybe are less familiar with the women's game or, or fans, but a, a sport that makes this work really well is tennis. Mixed doubles is is a competitive thing in, in a competitive thing, not just a for fun thing in tennis. We see men's and women's players train together all the time. There's so much mutual respect. And I think in basketball, that is all happening too behind the scenes. Steph and Sabrina know each other. They've practiced together. They were joking in the press conference before the event that Sabrina has, has probably beaten Steph at horse a couple of times. These things are happening behind closed doors. We should show that to fans. We should show that to the, the average, average viewer who might not actually understand the, the deep mutual respect that these players have for each other. So I liked it. I don't know. I don't take All-Star Weekend too seriously. I'm very much like whatever floats your boat. If you like it, great. If it's not for you, you get a weekend off. Um, I think they should bring this into the dub space, though. I think it would be a shame if this was an event that only existed on NBA terms. I would love for it to exist on WNBA terms. And like I said, bring a couple people in, make it a tag team. Uh, Let's get some, uh, some, some banter going and have some fun with it. Two other headlines I wanted to hit on really quick, just real real quick here, because they they follow a theme that I think is really exciting. Talk about, you know, record ratings at NBA All-Star for uh, for for the the, the staff and Sabrina contest, but attendance records this week. We had two fall again. The PWHL has actually broken their third hockey attendance record uh, in a row. This is the their third time breaking the professional women's hockey attendance record, um, this time with 19,285 fans in Toronto seeing PWHL Toronto play Montreal. But this one in particular is special. This is not just the record attendance for a professional women's hockey game. It is a record for all of women's hockey attendance, breaking a record set uh, by the Canada national team in 2013. Um, we always say this with new leagues, uh, sustained growth and sustained revenue are always going to be more important than just the high watermarks, but you need the high watermarks to be exceptional, to build that sustained growth. Um, I think there's a really good argument for the PWHL to be looking at NHL venues more. This is also, I mean, Toronto does have this team, but the, the, the viewership, the, uh, the fans are there. I'm really excited to see the PWHL grow. Um, Very excited to see that high point to have club hockey hit that record attendance, because as we know, it is so, so, so important to have healthy domestic leagues to feed into international teams. Um, And then the other attendance record I wanted to shout out was Arsenal in the WSL had 60,160 fans in attendance for their big game against Manchester United, which is a new WSL record. Um, actually not wholly dissimilar situation where these teams tend to play in smaller venues. They tend to have their, their home field advantage be a little bit more intimate um, and, and they have more control over the scheduling at smaller venues than they would moving into the large men's team venues full time. But again, growth is growth. And unless you're going to build uh, stadiums for all of your women's teams in, in these, these landlocked areas, I think that you have to really consider these WSL teams playing more games in these premier league stadiums. I'm really excited to see Chelsea and man city still a tie to top the league uh, after a city win over Chelsea this weekend, but Arsenal building something really incredible with their attendance. And I think it will only continue. What, what I'm excited to see is not necessarily the overall number go up. Cause as we know, like capacity is capacity, but I want clubs to keep setting club records. I want to see teams who are not in the top four keep setting these records, keep building these fan bases to justify that larger conversation of, okay, at what point have we outgrown our current venues? Because that's what you want. That's that sustained growth that you want to see in women's sports. And for my final thought of the week, it's a little bit of a pivot, but it actually takes us right back to the conversation at the beginning of the show, talking about players like Caitlin Clark, Paige Beckers, Angel Reese, making decisions about sticking with with college programs and NIL deals or going pro. Um, What actually prompted this, this is a little bit more of a thought starter. I actually don't know exactly how I feel about this just yet. Personally, I think I'm very wait and see because the landscape changes drastically as we know, very quickly, but a story this week. Uh, this is via ESPN. Nike signed 13 year old McKenna Witham to an NIL deal. Witham is a soccer player, a youth soccer player, 13 years old. Um, she has trained with professional teams like the Kansas City Current, Washington Spirit, and Gotham, and she's the youngest athlete in any sport to sign an NIL deal with Nike. She's a member of the class of 2028, that is high school, <laughs> and is currently on the US Youth with 15 national team. What's interesting about this, maybe this is a really good marker for how quickly things change. She's not the first 13-year-old to sign with Nike. That was actually Olivia Moultrie back in 2019. However, NIL didn't actually exist back then. So Moultrie signed a Nike deal and immediately gave up her college eligibility at 13, which she then had to battle the NWSL to be allowed to play professionally before turning 18. Moultrie is actually 18 now. I am fascinated by the developments in soccer here versus the conversations that we're having in women's basketball In women's basketball. You have to be at least 22 years old to enter in the WNBA draft. There is not a culture of one and duns, nor does that really make sense. The WNBA is very small. They need to expand more to be able to let younger college players in. We still see draftees struggle to make rosters. I'm not advocating for lowering that age. However, that does mean that the infrastructure of college is continuing to build. The NCAA infrastructure surrounding women's basketball has grown and grown and grown because there are competitive reasons for both the WNBA and these college players to stay in school. Now, you could also take that second argument of, well, with the marketing arm of these NCAA teams, with the built-in fan bases of these universities, NIL opportunities, Marketing-wise, are greater in college than they are in the pros. Though obviously, what I'm not I am not saying that those NILs that those endorsements go away. But you could argue perhaps that a large university has a better job marketing a player than an WNBA team does. The dub provides a salary, but they might not be able to make that up in their current marketing standpoint. But in soccer, players are increasingly in the United States skipping college entirely. It's not the same it does not have the same gravitas. ESPN has not built up college soccer the same way it has built up college basketball. The college Cup is great, but you look at the production value, you look at the storylines, it is not treated uh, with with the same uh, resources or intensity as college basketball. I'm not saying it's the same. I'm actually saying it's different and that is the point. Because in soccer, for a long time, you played four years of college and then you went to the NWSL draft, or you played four years of college, or you went overseas. Because the value of a college degree from a top university was part of the monetary compensation of being a really good soccer player. But now that the professional opportunities are much greater, and obviously there's always the pull of the national team, which I think many believe, certainly in the US, it helps a player build their brand more than anything, is getting on that U.S. Women's National Team. We're seeing a lot of players go pro very young. The U18 mechanism in the NWSL has been very popular to the point where they've actually capped how many U18 players you can have on each individual club. It helps them surpass the draft so t- uh, players can make more informed choices about where they would like to play and the best fit for them. And the idea is that in order for a player to maximize their professional potential and then therefore maximize their potential as both an elite athlete competitively, but also, you know, brand building and, and, and working with brands, is they need to go pro as soon as possible. They need to be in a professional environment. They need to be growing. And it is an advantage to do that by foregoing the college system. Now, I think there's room for everything. I think that it's like I've said, every individual choice is, is different. You see trends, you see people making similar choices, but they're not ever going to be the same. Every player, every child, every athlete is different. But it has been really interesting to see some of the two, two most prominent women's sports in the United States, which is soccer and basketball, go in just the complete opposite direction on this. Where we're seeing teenagers sign these NIL deals pre-college, or just simply go pro, give up their college eligibility because they don't feel like they need it. They feel like they can build a career as a soccer player that will um, outweigh what they could possibly get by waiting in college. They're being encouraged to do that by their coaches who want to see them in a professional environment, which they think will accelerate their growth as a player. But in women's basketball, it's almost completely the opposite. College at this point has almost been built up as the possible pinnacle for these players because they're still unsure exactly what waits for them when they move to the WNBA. A lot of this is perception. As we know, none of this is uh, an exact science. And like I said, it changes rapidly. But I'm very curious how the NWSL was able to open this pipeline up also without, I mean, they do at this point have more teams in the WNBA. And like I said, two very different sports, but just something to think about. When we have this conversation about NIL in college uh, for basketball, There are other women's athletes going a very different route to the point where I don't think that college being quote unquote more valuable than the WNBA has to be a foregone conclusion. It really just matters of what are our priorities for each of these players? Where are they being empowered to be their best selves? Do we want to encourage these players to actually be the best basketball players they can possibly be because that is how you build a long career? What do we feel about the international game? obviously, like I said, the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team is is the pinnacle. Do we see Team USA the same way in basketball? I just think it's a, a much larger, more interesting and nuanced conversation, perhaps, than just one sport kind of siloed NIL versus pro. So I'll leave you with that for this week. Next week, we will have so much to talk about. We're going to have U.S. U.S. games to talk about galore. I cannot wait. We'll probably have some updates in the WNBA and WSL off seasons. We're going to have more college basketball for you. Thank you guys so much for listening. Like I said, I really, really appreciate every time you listen, you engage, you comment. We're going to start working on integrating comments in a little bit more. So keep giving us your thoughts. We do read them. We do notice them. Uh, And yeah, just cannot wait to watch some soccer games because as you guys know, I love some soccer games. This has been The Late